0: a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy, as with a deadly wound in my bones my adversaries taunt while well, they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in with turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The word of the Lord.
1: (coughs) Psalm 42 is an important psalm because it deals with the reality of despair. It's a psalm of desperation that speaks to the moments in life where events take an unexpected turn and leaves you with your head swimming, wondering how you got here, making you feel hopeless and desperate. But Psalm 42 is also a very timely psalm. If you look beneath the surface of the headlines of our culture, we exist at a point in history in which despair has essentially become a national and cultural epidemic. And nobody has a clue as to how to fix it. Right now, people are scrambling, trying to figure out why the life expectancy in America has dropped over the last three years. Now, the last time that happened, where American life expectancy dropped three consecutive years was from 1916 to 1918, which is due to World War I and a massive flu epidemic. And that's saying a lot, considering that there's been the Great Depression, two Great Recessions, six wars, and all the technological advancement that we've experienced in between that time span. They're asking why. And researchers have essentially boiled it down to four main causes. Opioids, Liver disease, overdoses, and to be delicate, self-inflicted, mortal wounds. All four of these things have skyrocketed in the last 20 years, and they're trying to figure out why. And they boiled it down to these four things, but they're starting to ask, how did these things become such huge problems to where it would affect the life expectancy in this country? How did we get here? But therein lies the problem because they found that the things that are causing this are far more rampant and far bigger problems than they really originally knew. One of the factors is loneliness. In 1990, the average American male had four friends. Now he has one. This year, 47% of Americans confess that they are lonely. And the loneliest generation of all is Generation Z, which are those that are born after 1995, which is ironic considering that they have only ever known social media. The average American household has $140,000 of debt, and college now requires that you pay to get a degree that gets you a job that doesn't pay you enough money to pay off the debt that it took to get that job in the first place. And then you have the fact that once you get that job, the average stay at any job now is 4.2 years because employment is more transient and unpredictable than ever. And automation is happening at such a rapid rate that by 2035, it's estimated that machines will take over 80 million U.S. jobs. And the statistics go on and on and on. That's just scratching the surface. That doesn't even include any of the darker ones about overconsumption and drug use. And they're finding that despair is here to stay. Why? Because these problems are economical, sociological, psychological, physiological, and nobody knows how to solve it. And I say all of this because whatever you believe in, it better be able to speak to the reality of despair. And on top of that, what of the church? Where is the church in all this desperation? Because if we want to be a church that talks to the world in a way that we become light to it and offer hope, then we have to be a church that talks about despair and doesn't avoid it. Because if there's anything that Psalm 42 should tell you, it's that we have a God that very much wants to talk about it because sooner or later, despair is the drink that this world is going to serve you. And so this morning, maybe that is where you're at. You find yourself in a season of despair, some desperation that you're experiencing right now. If so... Then, right up front, would you allow Psalm 42 to communicate to you that it's okay that you feel despair? It's okay that you feel desperate. God's not mad at you, God's not punishing you, He's not abandoned you. Because our impulse, whenever we feel despair, is to think that we've done something wrong. I must have sinned, I must have made a mistake, or we think that we're weak. We just didn't have enough faith. Or somewhere along the way, we got outside of the will of God. But honestly, that's not even remotely the story that the Bible tells when it talks about despair. Think about the despair of Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all the prophets, and even the despair of Jesus. It's everywhere in the Bible, and there's virtually no major character in the entire scriptures that does not have to deal with despair over and against the promises of God. Despair is inevitable because God writes it into the story. But despair is also an opportunity. Because remember that the Psalms are the soundtrack of Israel. They guided and directed their worship as a people And this psalm should help us recognize that despair is written into the liturgy of God's people and how they approach God. Why? Because from the Bible's perspective, despair is an opportunity for worship. And if despair is an opportunity for worship, then ultimately despair is an opportunity to encounter God, which is why it's okay if you feel despair. And it flies against any notion, it flies in the face of any idea that you need to go and get yourself cleaned up, you need to pull yourself together, and then come to God. This psalm tells us the complete opposite, that your despair is precious to God. He wants you to come, and he wants you to lay it down and put it on the altar and meet him in it. So our goal this morning is to essentially allow the psalmist to teach us how to engage despair so that we might actually encounter God. And we'll do that by asking you three questions. Where is your focus? Where is your God? And where is your hope? Where is your focus, your God, and your hope? So our first question. Where is your focus right now? To understand the focus that the psalmist has, we need to get a sense of the situation that he's in. So verse 3, he says, My tears have been my food day and night. He's experiencing a loss of appetite, a loss of sleep. He can't eat because of that constant pit in his stomach. He can't sleep because his mind won't turn off. Verse 4, he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. So here the psalmist is remembering better days. When life was full of joy, expectation, surrounded by the people he loved. But now life's taking unexpected turns, terms, and all he's got left are those memories. And the one thing about despair is those good memories become a source of hurt and pain. Because it feels like you're not going to get those days back. Verse 6, he says, Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon. So previously, he's remembering the better days where he went to the house of God, which is where? In Jerusalem. But he's not there anymore. Now he's experienced a dislocation. He's been displaced. He's far to the north in the mountains of Hermon. But the problem is this place doesn't feel like home. In verses 9 and 10, he says, Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. So he's stuck in this place where his enemies mock and degrade him, and he feels wounded and humiliated. Now, that's the psalmist's despair. What's yours? Are you able to connect with any of that with where you're at in life right now? Maybe you're exhausted because your restless heart and your runaway mind won't let you sleep these days. Maybe you remember better days when your job seemed like a great opportunity at first and now it feels like a prison. You remember those days when you got married and you were so excited as to what life would be like now now and yet now you feel as though love has grown cold, or you never expected parenting to be this hard. Maybe you feel dislocated, displaced. Maybe you're here today, and you're new to the Rockwall area, and you never asked to be here. You didn't want to be here, and yet here you are, and it doesn't feel like home. And sure, maybe you're not on the run from your enemies, but you certainly feel the wounds of betrayal, being taken advantage of, and humiliated. Despair comes in all shapes and sizes. And whatever you might be experiencing, the psalmist would challenge us to recognize that in our despair, our inclination is to simply focus on our circumstances. And we just view life at the surface level. And the psalmist will challenge us to go deeper. How? Because notice what we don't see in this psalm. Notice what's not in it. He never asks for his circumstances to change or to be taken away. And it's not wrong that you would pray that. It's not wrong that you would ask for your circumstances to change, because that's an honest prayer. God invites that prayer. But the psalmist has a different focus. And you see it right at the beginning in verses 1 and 2. He says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He's completely aware of his circumstances and his hardships, but he doesn't let them become a distraction. And he knows that in his despair, his greatest need and his greatest desire is to experience God. Sure, his circumstances could change, and that might bring a little bit of relief, but he knows that it won't actually offer satisfaction. Why place his hopes in a new set of circumstances that will be just as unpredictable as the set of circumstances that he was previously in. So yes, he's aware of his situation, but the psalmist is focused on what really satisfies. As you are in your season of despair, what is your focus? Because if it never sinks deeper than your circumstances, then all you're just pursuing and wanting is a different situation. It's not real satisfaction. The psalmist would urge you to look deeper and to recognize that beneath all of that chaos of the heart lies one desire, and it's for God himself. Which brings us to our second question, where is your God? <coughs> it's psalms like this that challenge us to consider uh, the difference between what we profess and how we actually live. Because the Bible does set forth the idea that the deepest thirst of your humanity can only be satisfied by a relationship with God. That that hole in your heart only has one source of satisfaction, God himself, regardless of circumstance, situation, in good times or in bad. That is the constant of your life. Now, we profess that, don't we? We believe that, nobody disagreed with me, right? But do we live that way? is the way that you live evidence that you believe that God is your greatest source of joy and satisfaction because to ignore your thirst for God is actually a very dangerous thing think about physical thirst for a second it's said that physical thirst is actually a far more powerful impulse even than hunger and prolonged thirst and dehydration have incredible effects not just on the body but also on the mind In 2006, uh, David Busco was a perfectly healthy 29-year-old young man that was an adventure. He was was all about adventure and living life to the fullest, and so he signed up to participate in an outdoor survival program in Utah. And this program takes people through a, a very extreme training regimen to teach them how to survive in the harshest, most starkest of circumstances. And one of the first things they do in this program is they make the participants feel the effects of dehydration in a controlled environment. And the way they do that is they start off on a two-day hike in a hundred degree heat, and they don't give them any water. And at the end of this two days, they come to a cave where there's a natural spring, and they allow them to finally have a drink. And at the beginning of the second day, David Busco was in really bad shape. The effects of dehydration had started to set in the day before, and he woke up and he was in incredible pain because the first part of dehydration is extremely painful. But but he decided to continue on. But as the day went on, the effects of dehydration only got worse, but they also started to change. Throughout the day, they would lose track of David. They'd look back and he was gone because he would wander off, and they had to go find him. So you'd think that he was going to look for water, but he wasn't. The reason he would wander off is because after a while in prolonged dehydration, you actually begin to lose the sensation of thirst, and you're no longer aware that you need water. And the effects of dehydration start to bring the mind to a place of delirium, and you begin to hallucinate. And David was going off course because he was hallucinating and they finally found him at one point and he was having a full conversation with a tree and he was losing precious time. And in the end, he only got within 100 yards of the pool before dehydration took its effect. Now, if this is the effect of physical thirst on your mind and body, how much more so do you think you're affected by a far greater spiritual thirst that's within you? What happens in your life when you actually begin to ignore that thirst? Where do you start to get pulled away? If we step back and look at this psalm, the psalmist lives in a world that mocks him, he mocks his faith. They taunt him in his despair, and they say, where's your God? Where's your God, psalmist? He won't satisfy you. Now, you may not be on the run from, you know, for your life from your enemies, but you actually don't live in any different world than the psalmist does. Because the world we live in asks that same exact question. Where's your God at? Where is your God in your despair? Where's this God who claims to satisfy with living water? You and I don't live in a world that in any way encourages us to pursue that kind of thirst and in, in, to drink deeply in the life of God. It says, God won't satisfy. You don't need God. And instead, why don't you come over here? Why don't you come and drink this? Come and be satisfied over here. Be satisfied with that new house, new vacation package, likes on a Facebook post, a new diet, a sleeker version of yourself. In the end, you live in a world that offers you hallucinations. It says, come and drink deeply. Take Netflix, for instance. Sure. They don't come out and mock God, or the idea of God, outright. But they certainly don't mind taking his place in your life. In 2018 alone, just last year, Netflix spent $12.7 billion on original content. $12.7 billion. That produced 1,500 hours of television just last year. Which, in order for you to watch all of that in a given year, requires you to binge-watch over four hours a day, every single day, just to watch all of it. So in short, what do they want? They want all of your free time. It's an industry that recognizes how thirsty we are, and they are eager to satisfy it. Because they see the user data, they see how somebody starts a show, watches a couple episodes, and if you're not hooked immediately, what do you do? You hit stop, you go back and you find another show. And they know, in the end, that what we're looking for really isn't a show. We're looking for an addiction. We're looking for a fix. I want to be hooked. And they know that, in the end, that studies have shown that binge-watching produces the same amount of dopamine in your brain as heroin. They know exactly what we want. That's why we get depressed when we finish a show. That's why we're looking for the next Breaking Bad, the next Game of Thrones. You know what? I hate baking, and I just watched six seasons of the Great British Baking Show. (laughs) We want to be addicted. We long to be addicted. That's why we ask everybody what show they're watching, and probably half of our conversations devolve into, what are you hooked on these days? What's your fix? I want some of that. And they call binge-watching the new heroine. In the end, we live in a world that offers you all sorts of hallucinations that distract you from your real thirst, which is why this year in 2019, Netflix will invest another $15 billion in original content to satisfy it. Not to mention Hulu, Amazon, HBO Go, the list goes on and on. Why? Because your thirst is big business. And they can make a lot of money trying to satisfy it. Now, let me be clear here. There's nothing inherently wrong because you have a Netflix subscription. I know you're excited Stranger Things 3 is coming out on July 4th. You've got it marked on your calendar. But the real problem is not recognizing that you live in a world that constantly says you don't need God. The problem is that you believe it. And the problem is most creeps up the most and we're, we're most prone to believe that in moments of desperation. We're most prone to believe that we don't need God in despair. It's whenever we look for something else to drink. Do you want to encounter God? The only way you're going to do that is when you begin to identify the things in your life that you have begun to place your hope. There's no avenue towards God without you identifying what you have chosen to satisfy yourself with. And the easiest way to identify that is to simply ask yourself, what, what can you not live without? What is it that you look forward to? What takes the edge off of life? What is it that makes you feel like life is going to be okay? What trees do you sit in front of? What are your hallucinations? You have to identify that thing in your life. Why? Because it's occupying the space in which you would encounter God. And you're finding a substitute and you're forgetting your real thirst. And it brings us to our third question, which is, where is your hope? The psalmist gives us three very practical ways of pursuing hope in order that we might encounter God. But honestly, they're hard because each of them require that you choose to take control of both your mind and your time. So the first thing we see is in verse 4. He says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. Have you ever poured out your soul to God? He would just simply ask Do you take time to actually bleed everything that's in your heart towards God and to empty it before Him and to actually be willing to exhaust your vocabulary before God, asking Him to bring satisfaction? Because if you wanted to find true hope, I think the psalmist would start with this. The first thing to do is, are you willing to pray until something happens? Are you willing to pray and pour out your soul to God until he shows up in your life? Because what an act of faith that is. Because it says, I reject all other answers. I reject all other sources of satisfaction. And what's that do? That sets your heart on a completely different trajectory that's your trajectory that ends with encountering God. And the second thing you have to do is you have to learn to talk to yourself instead of just listening to yourself. Twice in Psalm 42 says what? Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. When you are in a season of despair, it's very hard not to just sit and listen to yourself, which essentially boils down to Woe is me! Look at all of these things I can't deal with, I can't change. Life is in despair, and all we do is dwell on those things. And then we just end up checking out, going numb, and we just say, It is what it is. But the psalmist would say, To learn to talk to yourself is an entirely different enterprise to learn to actually take the wheel and just quit being a passenger in this thing called life where you just feel helpless all the time, as though you don't have something to turn to. And Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, you know, the best sermons that are ever preached are the ones you preach to yourself. Why does he say that? Because he knows he's the prince of preachers. He's probably one of the, the top three preachers of all time. He saw thousands of people come to listen to his preaching. But he knows what's true. You could listen to great preaching all the time, and you could listen to God's promises, and all one great sermon after another. But whenever life gets difficult and life gets hard, all it does is carry you away and you crumble, then what's the point? So the psalmist would say, you have to learn to preach to yourself. And stop just listening to God's promises. Because when you actually learn to preach to yourself, now you're actually laying claim to God's promises as though they're actually for you. And it's in despair that you, recognize, you, you have to recognize that God's promises are a life preserver. The only way it's effectual for you and helpful is if you cling to it. And so he would say, you have to learn to talk to yourself. And when you do, God will join that conversation. Lastly, the psalmist helps us find God by learning to listen to God. To no longer just listen to our circumstances, but to learn to listen to God, but you have to learn to listen in a different way. He says two things in verse 8. The first thing he says is, By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And that seems like a switch, right? He's talking about despair, this agony that he's in, and his difficult circumstances, and then he just throws out, By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. What's he doing? It's in the midst of his despair that he's not allowing his circumstances to have the final verdict of God's presence in his life. Because what happens when we feel despair. It's like, oh, this thing is going bad, therefore all of life is going bad. He's not throwing God out with the bathwater and saying, because of this, life is terrible, God has abandoned me. He's going the complete opposite way and saying, yes, this is difficult, but he's finding God in the mundane realities of life. He's finding him in ways that otherwise he would have overlooked. And so if you're in the midst of despair, you have to step back and recognize that God is with you. Sure, this situation is difficult, but God is providing for you. There's going to be food on the table. Your kids are going to be okay. You have a church family that loves you. No one is going to abandon you. There are people that care about you and won't leave you. And in the end, this too shall pass. God's love is with you, but you have to be willing to stop and learn to see it and listen for it in a different way. And lastly, he says that at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Nighttime is a unique time. It's when life slows down, you finally have a little bit of time to yourself, the day settles down a little bit, you put the kids to bed, and you just have a moment to yourself. But quite frankly, you have to be willing to not hit play. You have to be willing to stop and listen for the song that God is singing. And you will never find it if every time you have a free moment to yourself, you just look for the next tree, look for the next escape, because in that satisfaction will always be an impossibility. And the psalmist would lead you in your despair to to encounter God, who is your exceeding joy. But it's hard, it's challenging. It's not easy to take control of your thoughts in your time, and to not just be passive in your desperation. It is hard. And not only that, it's completely pointless. It's completely hopeless to do any of the things that we've talked about, except for two moments in the New Testament where Jesus was offered something to drink. The first comes in Mark 15. As Jesus was carrying his cross to Golgotha, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh. Which was actually a drink that was given to those that were about to be crucified because it eased their pain, because it was a sedative. It was a drug. And Jesus rejected it, and he wouldn't drink it. And then on the cross in John 19, he said, I thirst. And what he was given was sour wine, which essentially is vinegar. It was the drink for a common slave that was never intended to satisfy. And he drank the full bitterness and pain of this world. Why? Because his true thirst was not in anything that this world offered, but ultimately that his thirst would be satisfied in God. He rejected all other sources of satisfaction, and he didn't let anything deter him in his pursuit of God, not even death. And on the third day, God satisfied that thirst. Why? Because you will feel despair at some point, And even though it's hard to find God in those moments, perhaps you might recognize when you look at Jesus, you would realize that it's worth it. No matter what you go through, there is a place in which God will not leave you nor abandon you. Why? Because he's got a lot invested in your satisfaction. So much so that he would give his own son. So much so that that investment is far more than $15 billion dollars. And any God that's not willing to step into this world and face the full thirst that faces you and I, in the end, is not a God worth believing in. But that's not what you have. You have a God that's worth waiting for. You have a God that wants to satisfy you. But you've got to be willing to wait and to find him. Let's pray.